Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I've always been fascinated by the book of Hebrews. And its theme is quite simple. As deep as it gets, this, the theme is this, Christ is better. Anything in the Old Testament, any of the teaching that had been received, Christ is better. So why would you turn back from Christ? But chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews has a whole long list of things that are required of us. First, of course, to the Hebrew Christians to whom the writer was uh, addressing all of this teaching, but... I think you could preach a whole, whole long series of sermons out of just this chapter because there are so many things that the author gives to us here. And so I'd like to read Hebrews chapter 13 as we consider these responsibilities we each have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, 
for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you.
Isaiah 21.8 says, Then the lookout called, O Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower, and I am stationed every night at my guard post. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. And one answered and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the graven images of her gods are shattered on the ground. O my trampled people and my afflicted of the threshing floor, what I have heard from Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. We are talking Revelation 18 this morning. We are talking the fall of Babylon. We are talking about the connection that we find in the Bible between physical Babylon in the Old Testament, spiritual Babylon in the book of Revelation. What I tried to emphasize to you last week was that the Old Testament prophets have a tendency to prophesy about things that are going to occur in the immediate future, But then they will almost haphazardly jump into things that are going to happen millennia from the time that they are alive. And they'll begin talking about end time things. And we looked at Jeremiah 50 last week in order to prove that point. And I said to you that we didn't get to Jeremiah 51, which is where I was hoping we would get. So this morning we are going to begin by looking at Jeremiah 51, and we're going to look at some of what Isaiah has to say this morning because they are speaking in concert with each other. They are saying the same things, which is physical Babylon, the kingdom with all of its influence there in the Middle East is going to fall. Just like I just read from Isaiah 21, Babylon is fallen. In Revelation 18, verse 2, you read that the angel who illumined the whole earth cried with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison for every unclean spirit and a prison for every unclean and hateful bird. So whether we're talking Isaiah or whether we're talking Revelation, the declaration is the same. Babylon is fallen. When Isaiah said it, he's talking about physical, actual, literal Middle Eastern Babylon, which controlled that entire region of the world. When we read it again in the book of Revelation, physical Babylon has been gone. Well, we know it's been at least 2,000 years, but it's actually more like 2,500 years since there's been an actual Babylon. So what is Revelation talking about? Because Isaiah said Babylon was going to fall, and it did. And as we read last week out of Jeremiah, it was never going to be occupied again, and never going to be rebuilt again, and it hasn't. And yet an angel who illumines the whole earth tells John that the word of God is that Babylon is going to fall. And so we have to see the difference between the predictions of physical, actual, literal Babylon in the Middle East and Babylon in all of its spiritual consequences. And I hope that in my introduction, 
I gave you some idea of how Babylon still exists here on planet Earth and has permeated our culture. Sadly, it has permeated our religious culture. And Babylon has even influenced our politics and even the ways that we count days and months. Most blasphemous of all is that Babylon is also entered into the worship that is supposed to be for Yahweh. So once you get that idea, it helps you to understand why spiritual Babylon has to be completely destroyed before Christ sets up his kingdom. Which, by the way, is coming up in chapter 19 and chapter 20 of Revelation. And John continues using this language of this happened, then this happened, then this happened. He's setting up a chronology. And in that chronology, Babylon has to fall before Christ returns to set up his kingdom. Before you even get to the controversial thousand years of Revelation 20, before that, the world system has to fall in order for Christ to be king of kings and lord of lords. So as I said, we're going to start in Jeremiah this morning. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 51. You're going to see parallels between what Jeremiah says here and what the book of Revelation says. You're also going to see that Jeremiah is going to be talking about physical Babylon and the fall of physical Babylon, and then he's going to leap forward to talk about end time stuff, as the prophets of the Bible do. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am going to arouse against Babylon and against the inhabitants of Lebkamai, the spirit of a destroyer, and I shall dispatch foreigners to Babylon, and they will winnow her and devastate her land. And on every side they will be opposed to her in the day of her calamity. Let not him who bends his bow bend it, nor let him rise up in his scale armor. So do not spare her young men. Devote all her army to destruction. And they will fall down slain in the land of the Chaldeans. And they'll be pierced through in the streets. Okay, so so far, Jeremiah is talking about physical Babylon that is going to fall to the Medes and the Persians. We know that historically, that's exactly what happened. And then suddenly, just like in chapter 50, if you remember our reading last week in Jeremiah 50, what we saw was, a declaration of Babylon's destruction and the restoration of national Israel, all 12 tribes. What chapter 50, verse 4 actually says is, In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, the sons of Israel will come, both they and the sons of Judah as well, and they will go along weeping as they go, and it will be to the Lord their God that they will seek. And they will ask for the way to Zion, that's Jerusalem, turning their face in its direction. And they will come that they may join themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. And then immediately 
Jeremiah goes back to talking about the destruction of actual physical Babylon. Well, he's going to do the same thing here. He's talking about the fall of Babylon, the warfare that's going to happen, and then suddenly he launches into promises for Israel that have yet to come true. Verse 5. For neither Israel nor Judah has been forsaken by his God, the Lord of hosts, although their land is full of guilt. Behold, the Holy One of Israel. What a beautiful promise, by the way. How did Israel become God's chosen people? I guess the answer is right in the question, isn't it? Israel is God's chosen people. He even said to them, it's not because you're the strongest or the most in number. You are my people because I chose you to be my people. And God does not change his mind about his chosen people. And here the declaration is, even though Israel has been scattered by the Assyrians, even though the southern tribes have been conquered by Babylon, despite their scattered condition, the promise is still, neither Israel nor Judah has been forsaken by his God, the Lord of hosts. And even though their land is guilty, uh, here's a quick question for you. Uh, anybody here in the room been feeling guilty lately? Really? I'm the only, I have my hand up and Micah did one of these. And that, <laughs> just he didn't want anyone to know. Every hand should have gone up right there. Guilty. You're just guilty. Isn't it good to know that it's not up to you to solve your guilt problem? Isn't it good to know that the God who never changes with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of changing. That is the God who will not forsake you, proven by the fact that he has not forsaken Israel and Judah, despite the fact that their whole land is full of guilt. Nevertheless, God has promised them an everlasting covenant that will not be forsaken because it's coming from the Holy One of Israel. Those are firm promises. And when I read stuff like that, I think, what a great God we serve because I'm as guilty as Israel ever was. I can make most of Israel look like amateurs. And yet, God has not given up on me. And yet, he continues to provide for me. He continues to bless me. He continues to take care of me. And then I open his word and it says that that is his nature. That is his character. That he has loved us with an everlasting love. And that's the reason that he drew us to himself. And that he keeps covenant with his people eternally. Never changes. Never turns their back. What a magnificent promise for each one of us. But that same promise is given to Israel. So that promise of Israel being spiritually secure and ever taken care of is right in the middle of a prophecy about the destruction of Babylon. So what did the prophet just do? The prophet was talking about the fall of actual physical historic Babylon and right in the middle of it leapt to the spiritual implications of the ultimate fall of Babylon. So what should you do then? Verse 6, the instruction is flee from the midst of Babylon. And each of you save your life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment. 
for this is the Lord's time of vengeance, and he is going to render recompense to her. Okay, so in Revelation 18, as Babylon is falling, we read in verse 4, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out from her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins, and so that you may not receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered all her iniquities. In Jeremiah, they are told physically, literally, because Israel is actually in Babylon, they are told, come out of Babylon, because I'm going to destroy Babylon. So don't be destroyed with them. Come out of Babylon. Revelation picks up the exact same language and says, come out of Babylon, you Christians. Be separate from this world. Be separate from this system. Yes, you're in the world, but you're not of this world. Christ has chosen you out of this world. Continuing in Jeremiah 51, verse 7, Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth, and the nations have drunk of her wine. Therefore, the nations are going crazy. Can I get a witness? The world seems awfully crazy right now. No surprise. Babylon is a golden cup in the hand of God. And the nations, the kings, the leaders of the earth have drunk of her fornications, of her porn uo. And they have participated in her insanity and they have all gone mad. We see the exact same language here in Revelation 18. For all the nations, says verse 3, for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Okay, so Jeremiah, talking about literal physical Babylon, says it's full of gods and idols and blasphemy, and it's going to fall. Book of Revelation uses the exact same language, even though physical Babylon is gone, in order to say we, the church, need to come out of Babylon and not participate the way the world participates, because after all, the world has gone utterly mad, and we who have Christ are supposed to be in our right mind. So do you see how Jeremiah uses the language that Revelation also picks up and uses, and each of them have a different application depending on who's saying it and what the surrounding circumstances are. Have I lost anybody yet? No. Okay, I'm going to keep checking with you because this is going to get technical. Verse 8 of Jeremiah 51. Suddenly, Babylon has fallen and been broken wail over her. And then God is rather sarcastic here. There's a cynical moment on God's part proving that my cynical sarcasm is really just a very godly kind of... Okay, never mind. Suddenly Babylon has fallen, and then he mocks them, wail over her. Bring balm for her pain. Perhaps she can be healed. So we applied healing to Babylon... But she was not healed. That's just God being sarcastic. 
Now, go ahead. Give it your best effort. Go ahead. When we get to the book of Revelation, we're going to see that the merchants of the earth and the religious leaders of the earth wail over the fall of Babylon because that is their foundation. That is where they get their power, where they get their money. Same thing back here with the actual fall of physical Babylon. God mocks the people of Babylon and says, you can wrap her up, you can bring balm, you can try to make her heal, but there's no healing for this. Forsake her and let us each go to his own country for her judgment has reached up to heaven and towers up to the very skies. Okay, I mentioned this in passing last week, but it's an important little element. Where does Babylon begin in the Bible? Where does Babylon begin historically? Where does Babylon begin on planet Earth? The Tower of Babel. You only get a couple chapters into Genesis before you see the Tower of Babel and you see the rebellion against God led by Nimrod, who is opposed to God. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to build a tower to reach heaven. And that rebellion is enough for God to say, I'm going to go down there and scatter their languages so that no longer can they all be in unison in their plans. And so they intended to reach to heaven. The language prophetically here is, oh, yeah, they reached to heaven. Their sins reached to heaven. And then in a little moment of irony, he also uses the word, their iniquities tower up to heaven. They built a tower thinking they were going to get to heaven. And instead, it's their sin that towers above them. For her judgment has reached to heaven and towers up to the very skies. Verse 10, the Lord has brought about our Israel's vindication. And come, let us recount in Zion and do the work of the Lord our God. Sharpen your arrows, fill your quivers. The Lord has aroused the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose is against Babylon to destroy it, for it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of his temple. Okay, so what did Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon actually do in Jerusalem? Well, they destroyed the walls of Jerusalem, and then they took down the temple. God takes that very personally and says that he's going to pour out his vengeance because of his temple. The very place where his worship goes on has been destroyed by the Babylonians. You don't get more anti-God than that. And so God is going to pour out his vengeance on those people in his own defense of his own temple, of his own worship. But notice how specific Jeremiah was. He wrote that Babylon was going to fall to the Medes before it ever occurred. So who conquered Babylon? The Medes. Wasn't that lucky? Amazing. It's amazing. I mean, Greece was growing up into a superpower in that area right around that time. What if they had managed to get to Babylon before the Medes? Then God's word's not true. See, God keeps doing this thing where he keeps telling you what the future is, and then he challenges you to go check it out. And if he ever misses, well, then we can close our Bibles and say, well, that's not true, and go home because there's a lot of sinning still to get done. 
But as long as God continues with this perfect batting average, there's no way to deny that this is, in fact, the word of God. Because nobody could get this much stuff accurate and true without the spirit of God guiding them. So Jeremiah puts it in print. It's going to be the Medes that are going to take down Babylon. Sure enough, the Medes and the Persians conquer. By the way, notice the little tiny details like the fact that it's not the king of the Medes. It's the kings because there were two. There was Cyrus and there was Darius. Cyrus, the king of the Persians, Darius or Darius, the king of the Medes. Even the little details Jeremiah got right. It's astounding stuff. And yet, despite the fact that historically we know that the Medes and the Persians did in fact conquer Babylon, who took credit for all of it? Now your answer is correct, Tom. God did all of it. Even though he used the Medes and the Persians to conquer Babylon, God says, my vengeance. Okay, so let's apply this to the book of Revelation for a second. Because there is a time of trouble, such as never was or ever will be again, predicted in the book of Revelation, predicted by Jesus in Matthew 24, predicted by Jeremiah, predicted by Daniel. They all talk about this time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again. And God refers to it as his judgment. So even though we see the world doing these insane things and going to war and rumors of wars, even though we see human beings working against Christianity, it is nevertheless God whose sovereign hand is in charge of every bit of it, and where vengeance is poured out, even by human agency, it is still God who takes credit for it and says, I did that because I'm in charge of everything. It was true in Jeremiah's day. It's true in our day. Our sovereign still reigns. I'm sorry, my ride's here. I got to go. Verse 12 of Jeremiah 51. Lift up a signal against the walls of Babylon, post a strong guard, station sentries, place men in ambush, for the Lord has both purposed it and performed it. And this is what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. So who conquered Babylon? The Medes and the Persians. Why did it happen? Because God spoke it and he was going to do it. And God says, it is the day of my vengeance. So it's God's vengeance But it's the people who don't even know him, who don't even worship him, who actually end up doing the work. By the way, let's add an extra wrinkle here. Isaiah, who we're going to look at in a moment, if time permits. Isaiah, 150 years before Cyrus was even king of the Persians, named him by name. And said that it was Cyrus who was going to construct a decree that was going to allow the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple. Do you realize how many things had to occur very sovereignly for Cyrus to be the next king of the Persians? When he's predicted 150 years in advance, that's not just about Cyrus and his name. It's about who married who. It's about what children they had or whether they were barren. 
It was about naming people. What if Cyrus's parents had named him something else? Well, then the Bible's wrong. Wasn't it lucky that Cyrus's parents decided to go with Cyrus for a name? So everything we're reading right here is so definite that the prophets have already stated the who and the when and the what army and what king and what nation's going to fall and what nation's going to rise up. I'm only emphasizing all that so that I can say to you yet again, the same exact God is in charge right now. And he has already proven himself over and over and over again. And if that's the God that's got your back, well, if that God be for you, who can be against you? Okay, continuing on in Jeremiah 51, verse 13. O you who dwell by many waters, abundant in treasures, your end has come. The measure of your end, the Lord of hosts has sworn by himself, surely I will fill you with a population like locusts, and you will cry out with shouts of victory over you. It is he who made the earth by his own power who established the world by his own wisdom. And by his own understanding, he stretched out the heavens. And when he utters his voice, it is like a tumult of waters in the heavens. And he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. And he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. What is that whole verse about? That's God saying, I'm sovereign. I'm in charge. I'm God. That's why I can do whatever I want to do. And that's why when I say things are going to happen, they're actually going to happen. Because I'm the one who's in complete control. And notice the characteristics that he gave himself. He has all the power, so he made the earth by that power. He establishes the world in his own wisdom. And he has his own understanding with which he stretched out the heavens. Okay, so... Having established who he is, what he's like, and what his characteristics are, he's now going to talk about you. Are you ready? All mankind is stupid. Seems to be. Seems to be. Anybody here want to argue that point? By the way, I'm reading from the NASB, which actually does render that phrase as stupid. Just so you know, I didn't just make that up. And yet, I'm sure that we would all agree that all mankind, especially when compared to the power and the wisdom and the understanding of God, we would have to say that all of us collectively just don't know anything. Which is why Isaiah would write, God speaking, God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts, and my ways higher than your ways. God is constantly saying, I'm not like you. So don't make a God of your own imagination who you can form more like yourself. God is not a wax nose that you get to form so that he fits your face. God is utterly, completely different than you, And he keeps declaring that over and over again. All mankind is stupid and devoid of knowledge. That means you know nothing. 
Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his molten images are deceitful, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless. They are a work of mockery. And in the time of their punishment, they will perish. Meanwhile, what belongs to Israel? The portion of Jacob is not like these. For the maker of all is he, God. And of the tribe of his inheritance, the Lord of hosts is his name. And he says to Israel, you are my war club. You are my weapon of war. And with you I will shatter nations. And with you I destroy kingdoms. And with you I will shatter the horse and his rider. And with you I shatter the chariot and its rider. And with you I shatter man and woman. And with you I shatter old man and youth. And with you I shatter young man and virgin. And with you I shatter the shepherd and his flock. And with you I shatter the farmer and his team. And with you I shattered governors and prefects. Has that happened? Nope. Nope. So, did Babylon fall? Yes. Yeah. Babylon, physical, actual Babylon fell. And yet, as a part and parcel of the exact same prophecy, there is the prediction that God is going to raise Israel up to be the chief kingdom on the planet, and through Israel, he's going to destroy and shatter every other system in the world, every other kingdom in the world, every other power and authority in the world. He's going to destroy them and shatter them and break them down, and he's going to do it all through Israel. That hasn't happened yet. And yet, in the exact same prophecy, we can find stuff that, yes, has actually happened. Okay, so let's do the math. Uh, so far, we've seen God have a perfect batting average when it comes to predicting things that are going to happen in the short term. They've all happened. They've all occurred. You can't find one prophecy in the Bible anywhere of God saying this is going to happen historically that did not happen. And in fact, even when Jesus was on the planet... He said, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill. And in fact, we're told through Christ, in him, the promises of God are all yes and amen. So even Jesus is in the process of fulfilling the word of God. And so far, it's being fulfilled perfectly. So what are we going to do with these parts that we read that we have to say, well, that hasn't happened yet. Israel has not become the chief nation yet. Israel has not been shattering all its enemies yet. So what are we going to say about that? Well, we have to say, based on God's perfect batting average so far, And based on his phenomenal accuracy in telling the end from the beginning, we have to conclude as an element of our faith that the Bible is true and the circumstances of life, even though they look contrary to the Bible, we still have to faithfully stand on the Bible and say every word of this Bible is true, including the prophecies that have not come true yet, because God has already proven to me that he does in fact keep his word. And if he doesn't, you're not saved. And if he keeps his word perfectly, you're eternally secure. And that means you have to also agree that he's going to do all this with Israel. Make sense? Yes, it does. Verse 24, but I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all their evil. 
that they have done in Zion before your eyes, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain. This is interesting language, too. He's speaking of Babylon, the kingdom, as a mountain. And then we saw the same interpretation in the book of Revelation, that the mountains were kingdoms. So it's consistent throughout the Bible. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys the whole earth, declares the Lord. And I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will roll you down from the crags, and I will make you a burnt-out mountain. And they will not take from you even a stone for a corner, nor a stone for a foundation, and you will be desolate forever, declares the Lord. Physical Babylon that actually occurred. Anybody taken a vacation to Babylon lately? No. Can you buy a ticket to Babylon? No. Can you go visit the Hanging Gardens? Come on, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Hanging out in Babylon. No, why? It's not there. It's not there. You may recall that over there in Iraq, there have been several attempts, one of them just, what, 15, 20 years ago, an attempt by Saddam Hussein to rebuild Babylon, making himself the new Nebuchadnezzar. They want to rebuild Babylon. They can't. Why? Because God says they can't. Babylon is going to remain completely destroyed. And yet, the book of Revelation brings up Babylon. So that's the difference between physical Babylon, which God actually destroyed physically in time, and spiritual Babylon, which is still alive and well on planet Earth, and God has also promised to destroy it, and his proof that he's going to destroy the systems of this world is that he has already destroyed physical Babylon. Got it? I'm going to keep checking with you. Anybody bored yet? No. Okay. Turn to the book of Isaiah. Go to Isaiah 13. This is fascinating. Isaiah, who, by the way, predates Jeremiah. I mean, at least Jeremiah, Babylon rose up and took Judah into captivity right during the period of Jeremiah. He is a contemporary of Daniel, and Daniel was actually in that deportation into Babylon. So Jeremiah's predicting somewhere in the late 600s B.C., Isaiah, meanwhile, his prophetic career is from 740 to 700 B.C. So he's predicting these things before Babylon is even the superpower in the Middle East. At the time that he's writing, Assyria is the power in the Middle East. And yet he could talk predictively not only of Babylon rising up, but of Babylon being destroyed by God. I've got to get moving or you're never going to get out of here. Or you could just never get out of here. Those are the two options. Chapter 13 of the book of Isaiah. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw, lift up a standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. And I have called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalting ones, to execute my anger. 
a sound of a tumult on the mountains like that of many people, a sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. And they are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizon. And the Lord, the Lord and his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. Okay, so far we could read that and say, okay, he's talking about physical Babylon. Those things could be applied to physical Babylon. Okay. When suddenly Isaiah leaps forward to the day of the Lord. The book of Revelation has already defined the day of the Lord for us, which is the time of God's ultimate judgment. And yet Isaiah says in verse 6, wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as a destruction from the Almighty. And therefore all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt and they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take a hold of them and they will rise like a woman in labor or a man with a kidney stone. And they will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning fire to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from us. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Wait a minute. That's the same language that Joel uses that Peter picked up on the day of Pentecost that Jesus said is going to occur right before the sign of the Son of Man appears in heaven. So what did Isaiah just do? He was talking about physical Babylon. The destruction of that, and suddenly he launches into day of the Lord language that includes the constellations and the stars and the sun and the moon going dark and the sign of the Son of Man and the return of Christ. He leaps all the way to the end. And thus, I will punish the world, not just Babylon, not just the Middle East. Thus, I will punish the world for its evil. And I will punish the wicked for their iniquity. And I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make a mortal man scarcer than pure gold. And I will make mankind scarcer than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I shall make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken in its place. At the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. The next section, starting at verse 17, Isaiah returns to telling us that Babylon, physical Babylon, is going to fall to the Medes. Verse 17 even says it. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold. And their bows will mow down the young men, and they will not have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity the children in Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so he started talking about physical Babylon. He ended talking about physical Babylon being destroyed by the Medes. And right in the middle of it, Isaiah leapt to the day of the Lord, the ultimate destruction of all mankind, and the sun and the moon and the stars going dark. And Jesus picks that up and says, that's to prepare for the sign of the Son of Man returning. I love the way the Bible is woven together. All these parts and pieces tell the same story. 
in chapter 14 now of Isaiah, there's going to be Israel's taunting, not only of Babylon, but of their king, of Nebuchadnezzar. And in the midst of that taunting, in the midst of making fun of the fallen king, Isaiah is going to talk right past Nebuchadnezzar to Satan himself, proving what I've been saying all the way through the book of Revelation, that this succession of kings that has ever ruled over God's people, Israel, is a spiritual, not just a political, but a spiritual battle that includes even angels like Michael having to withstand the prince of Persia, and then into that vacuum comes the prince of Grisha. Exactly is what happened in history, and yet Daniel predicts it person by person. It's an astounding book we're reading. Chapter 14 of the book of Isaiah. When the Lord had compassion on Jacob and again chose Israel. By the way, Israel is God's chosen. If you believe in election, if you believe that you came to God because God elected you, Israel first. Israel is the chosen. Israel is the elect. And God is going to continue to choose them. And he's going to settle them in their own land. And then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them along and bring them to their place. That means all the Gentile nations are going to help in the returning of Israel back to their land. And the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord, as male servants and as female servants. And they will take their captors captive and they will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from all your pain and your turmoil and your harsh service in which you have been enslaved that then you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon saying how the oppressor has ceased. And how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers, which used to strike the people in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. And the whole earth now is at rest and is quiet. And they will break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Sheol, the grave from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead and all the leaders of the earth. By the way, notice that the leaders of the earth are in Sheol. Just thought I'd mention it. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones And they will all respond and say to you, even you have become weak like one of us. You have become like us. Your pomp and your music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out over you as a bed beneath you. And worms are your covering. Okay, so far that taunt all seems to be about Nebuchadnezzar. And Israel very rightly is saying how wrong Nebuchadnezzar is and how justified God is in judging him. And then suddenly verse 12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. What just happened? 
He went right from Nebuchadnezzar, the physical king of Babylon, to the demon that drove him. Because, as I keep saying, this succession of world leaders that we've been reading about over and over, all these sevens in the book of Revelation, all these seven hills and seven mountains, all these seven kings, all these, these are the succession of kingdoms that have ever ruled over Israel, and they are all demonically inspired. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high God. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit, And those who see you will gaze at you and they will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the whole earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in their own tomb, but you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. clothed with the slain who are pierced with the sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse and you will be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country you have slain your people may the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned again forever prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers They must not arise and take possession of the earth or fill the earth with its cities. And I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will cut off from Babylon name and survivors, offspring and posterity, declares the Lord, and I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and the swamps of water, and I will sweep it with a broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay, what just happened? It began with physical Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. It ended with physical Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And right in the middle of it, and how did you fall from heaven? And you were raised up in your pride and tried to make yourself equal with God. O Lucifer, O son of the morning. All I'm demonstrating to you over and over again is that these Old Testament prophets, when talking about Babylon, all do this same thing where suddenly they leap forward to the spiritual Babylon the spiritual warfare, and the spiritual darkness that continues to permeate this world, which is why the Apostle Paul could say we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers, the leaders of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. Paul's agreeing with what Isaiah said. Isaiah's agreeing with what Daniel said. Daniel's agreeing with what Jeremiah said. And Jesus is agreeing with them all. Because we are in the midst of a spiritual warfare here on planet Earth. And we're seeing it more and more break out and become more obvious on the planet. So what should we be doing? Should we be wringing our hands in worry? Should we be thinking, oh no, the bad guys are finally winning? No, what we should do is take heart, take confidence, take faith in the fact that the same God who ever protects Israel is still on his throne, still protecting us. David said, where is your God? 
our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Which means he's still pleased today with what's going on on the planet because he wrote it down in advance to tell us it was going to happen, which is why for 21 years I've been saying, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. Because the Bible says that. So when you see the world getting worse, all that does is prove the Bible's true. Revelation 18, turn there. That was all introduction. Now we're getting somewhere. Revelation 17 and 18 are all about Babylon. As we've seen, Revelation 17 is about religious or ecclesiastical Babylon. Chapter 18 is about political and economic Babylon. And so we see those two distinctions and we see similarities and we see differences. For instance, the similarities between chapter 17 and chapter 18, between religious Babylon and economic political Babylon, both of them are full of blasphemy. That's not a real good thing to be united in, but they both are blasphemous against God. Both of them are described as being opposed to the saints, hating the saints of God and shedding their blood. Both of them engage in spiritual fornication with the kings of the earth. Both end up destroyed in God's judgment. And even in chapter 17, even though we're talking about religious Babylon, in verse 18, the harlot is still identified as the great city. So the imagery in both chapters continues to come from the Old Testament prophets, and I hope that's what you're seeing. That's why we spent all the time reading the Old Testament prophets concerning Babylon so that you can see the similarity of language that carries over into Revelation. The differences are, in chapter 17, Babylon is symbolized as a harlot woman. In chapter 18, it's a great city. In chapter 17, Babylon is guilty of religious abominations. In chapter 18, Babylon is full of political power and greed and self-indulgence. In chapter 17, Babylon is taken down and destroyed by the political power of the ten kingdoms that used to support her. But in chapter 18, Babylon is destroyed by God in a sudden act of vengeance. And the kings who destroy the Babylon of chapter 17, you will remember, they rejoiced. They celebrated over her destruction. In the Babylon of chapter 18, the kings of the earth and the merchants all lament and weep over her. Let's start reading at chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, those three words prove that John is continuing to write sequentially. The things that occur in chapter 17 occur before the things in chapter 18. As we continue, I'm going to be emphasizing John's use of the word chi, translated and. And you're going to see John say, and then, and then, and then, and then, because he's laying out a sequence that he has been using as a literary device through most of the book, but you're really going to see it come to life in these last couple of chapters because John is driving at the fact that he's creating a sequence. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was lit with his glory. 
And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison for every unclean and hateful bird. I began this morning by reading Isaiah 21, 8 to you, which says the same thing. Verse 3. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. It's the same language Jeremiah used, here transported into Revelation. Verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins, and so that you may not receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. That should sound familiar to you. We just read it out of Jeremiah. So then pay her back, even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to all her deeds. And in the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. All of that combined just means that God is going to pour out his vengeance on her and is going to utilize the same things that she did to the people of earth, to his people Israel, to his church, the way that the world system has damaged, done damage, and continually opposed God's people. God is going to drive that same opposition back to them, except double. Verse 7. To the degree that she has glorified herself and lived sensuously, to that same degree, give her torment and mourning. Because she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow, and I will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire for the Lord God Who judges her is sovereign. Got it? it. If you come away with nothing else this morning, as you see this world continue to devolve, as you see this world continue to become more violent, more sexually impure, as you see this world which will do anything, kill anyone, go to any war if it makes them richer. As you see this world continue to fight for power over other people. As you see this world continue to oppress the poor and the downtrodden and the hungry. As you see this world continue to apparently just fall apart, which it's doing with great rapidity at this moment. Remember who's on the throne. And remember that that God on that throne already conquered physical Babylon, predicted it, said who was going to do it, took credit for it, said it was his vengeance. That's the same God who has told us that he is going to destroy spiritual Babylon too. And he has already given you the evidence that he's going to do it because he already did the physical stuff. That's a God you can trust. You can lay your life in his hands 
knowing full well that he loves you, he protects you, and he's going to care for you. I keep saying the definition of faith is standing on the word of God and reckoning it as more true than your circumstances. Circumstances in this world are a mess right now. The word of God is absolutely true, absolutely rigorous. You can stand on it. You can trust it all the way to your grave. And then all the way to eternity. How great is that? And as you see the world go crazier and crazier, just remember the Bible said that was going to happen. If you know the rest of your Bible, you know who wins. And when God wins and Christ sets up his kingdom and we return with him to rule and reign over the nations, we win too. But we only win in Christ. The whole world loses without Christ. Got it? it. Well, then good. I'm going to get out of the way then. Steve and Jeff and Tom and Erica and Christian are going to come lead you in another
Romans chapter 1 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness against men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth of God. And then in chapter 2, it tells us that those who are unrepentant of that are storing up the wrath of God for the great day of judgment. And that's a lot of storing up is going on these days. And that's what we see played out against uh, Mystery Babylon in chapter 18 and prophesied by Isaiah and Jeremiah, as we saw. So I agree with you, the, the weaving of the scriptures together from the Old Testament prophets to future prophecy and, and revelation is a wonderful thing to have that and to be able to have the Spirit lead us into that truth and see it. it it's amazing. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.